Welcome to Becoming Parents Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Taylor Campbell. I'm a birth and bereavement doula, as well as an adoption and surrogacy doula. Doula means woman who serves. And although I love happy births, adoptions, and surrogacy, the pro bono part of my business is in bereavement. I'm here to help you. I'm also mom of 18, yes, 18 children, with over 30 years experience in the trenches as a mom myself. We have a huge blended family, and I've also experienced the loss of our adult son. Remember, give a shout out to those brave enough to share their stories on how they have become parents. Let's dive in. Welcome to Becoming Parents. I'm Jen Taylor Campbell, and today I have Casey on. Casey, I want you to tell people how you and I know each other. We know each other very well. Um, I went into foster care, and you were my first foster parent. Woo! You're one of my 18 kids. I love you so much. It was an honor and a privilege. I remember seeing you, you came to church with another family. And it's one of those times that like God whispers to you and you're like, you are crazy. But I remember looking at you and thinking, she's my daughter and being like, what a creep, man. What is the matter with you? (laughs) Anyway, you are my daughter. So I wasn't a creep in the end, but (laughs) you came to me at the age of 10. How old are you now? I am 34. I'm not sure how that happened. I always think I'm remembering it wrong, but I was remembering it right. So I have known you for 24 years plus, and you came into my home and absolutely 100%. I love you the same as Brie or Liv or anybody. You're no different. I'm probably going to cry on this podcast. I was your foster mom. So what do you want to, this is your story. So I'd like you to share that experience and up to when you got pregnant with Alana maybe and, and your thoughts, because you can talk very openly about CPS and your situation. Okay. I definitely will cry. (laughs) Um, So I remember the day that uh, OCS came into the school. And they brought me into the room with my little brother and um, asked us a couple questions about my biological mom and my stepfather. And I answered them, honestly. Um, and next thing I know, she gets up and she says, okay, that's it. And she's like, you guys are gonna come with us. And I didn't understand what was happening. Um, I just knew that I was going with these people. And so they let me go back to my classroom. And during that moment, I felt like I needed to run. And I wanted to run out the double doors. Um, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was really upset. Um, I was scared. Um, but they took me and part of me was kind of like, I kind of felt like good. Like it was maybe better than what I had been going through or what I had been in. Um, but I kind of, I just went with it. Uh, I decided not to run. And then they drove me to your house. And the moment that I got there, I um, immediately just felt like I was home. Mm. I just remember just feeling comfortable and safe and like I mattered like Mm. I was actual human being and I was now part of a family and I had a mom and a dad and um it was weird to see mom things um like breakfast being served um you know having whole milk like really healthy good milk that was just I will never forget milk and Cheerios. (laughs) (laughs) I made my kids eat it because of that. Um, I'll never forget that. And packing my lunch for school and being brought into an amazing school that was really good for me. Oh, Um, yeah, that's right. Oh, my gosh. I was so glad I was able to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, You guys, you guys fought to get me into uh, the school and like did a a lottery and yep got me and I felt really special about that and 
Um, I don't know. It just immediately felt like I was home, like I was where I was belonged and everything just went really well and smooth. And I was very help happy. Um, it wasn't until like, I want to say Easter that I had my first moment in, in your home and it wasn't a bad thing. It just, we were celebrating Easter or wait, it was new year's. New Year's, um, it was a thing in your home. And like, we went to uh, Gina's house. Yeah. And they had like fireworks and I was scared that people were going to be drinking and things were going to get kind of crazy because when I had got, you know, in my past together, like get togethers like that, it had turned into a party or lots of drinking and stuff. And that didn't happen. And it was, it, w- it was weird to me, um, but I had so much fun that night. And I remember New Year's just being a thing. It was special. Um, and then when Easter came around or when Christmas came around, I, I remember I hadn't believed in Santa Claus. And this was so special to me. Um, we didn't always have Christmas in my home, um, but I remember like telling you that I knew Santa wasn't real and you said, that's okay. You get to help us then. And yeah. you did, you let me help. And that was really special. But I, you know, I, I respected the little ones that believed in Christmas and that was a really special moment for me to be part of. Um, and, and it made me feel like just because I wasn't, didn't believe I was still part of the family because I still had a job in that, in that position. Um, around Easter time was the first time that I had a moment in, in myself where I was like, this is, this is different. Um, I remember Easter morning, I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand that there was like, Easter baskets and that we were doing something that was a big day and I didn't want to get out of bed because I didn't know how to react and um I just remember you saying okay well then you you can do you and you kind of just let me be and I had to kind of work through that which was really good it gave me that moment to kind of say okay this is just what my family's doing and I need to join or I don't and I got up and I was scared because I had not celebrated Easter and I got on board and it was, it was great. So now Easter is a big thing in my home because <laughs> we just didn't, we didn't celebrate Easter or we did maybe like once or twice, but I didn't know. It's, um, in, it's hard when you're the foster parent and you read Basically, you're reading a file, and often there are police reports. There's all the social worker notes. There's the information about the family. It's hard as a foster parent to just set that aside and just be present for the kids. So I understand when foster parents, you know, you read this information and it makes you mad. And you want to protect them. And also you're in this mindset where if you're a good foster parent, you know, you're bringing kids into this much better place. And it's challenging to realize that the foster child isn't grateful for that because kids want their parents to get it together and want they want to be worth it to their parents so that their parents get it together and they're a family. They don't want the foster parent often or the house. And they feel guilty like they're cheating on their biological parents by enjoying themselves and loving being at the house. There's a lot of grief and loss that kids feel. And it's not just like, uh, like, aren't you lucky that you got out of this really bad situation and now you're in a better situation? And I know we'll probably talk about foster homes that aren't a better situation. And that's super unfortunate. But for those of us who do it for the right reasons and want to make a difference, you have to tread lightly 
in like offering what is happening in your family and realizing that these kids aren't like, oh, thank goodness I'm out of that bad situation and we're doing Easter. Like there's a lot of processing. So keep, keep going. Um, so to touch on that a little bit, basically when I was put in your home, I completely forgot about my past life. Um, I Which mean, is crazy. I remembered, I remembered the trauma, but I forgot about my mom. I forgot about my stepdad. I forgot about my brothers. Like I was home. I felt right. like I was in my home. Like it wasn't a big deal to separate from my mom because there was very little connection. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't too hard on me, um, to not see her, not talk to her because that was how it was in right. general. Right. Um, I know I was aware. I mean, there's a lot of things you're aware of. There are kids that come into foster care that aren't familiar with using utensils or right. definitely not having regular meals, let alone right. cooking and taking lunches. Like there's a lot of parents not being around a lot of neglect and not a lot of food or like just what I think is, is common knowledge, like to be raised with mm -hmm. manners or to be, you know, so as a foster parent, I was always very conscious of the fact that like food hoarding is normal because you don't know when you're going to get food again. I, I remember, can I share something I remember reading and you can clarify mm -hmm. it? I yeah. remember so you lived in a house. Now, again, this was in Alaska where it's common outside of the cities to not have running water or electricity to carry your wood, carry your water. And so I remember that it was winter. There was a report that you guys didn't have electricity and that you were rationing a jar of honey. And you can clarify that because that could be a memory that was a little off. So that is actually two different incidents, I think. Um, I do remember in the middle of winter, we woke up and our parents were gone and we had no electricity. We had no heat. It was the middle of winter and my older brother um, had been going to Boy Scout. And so with, with the Warners and yeah. So they came up with a big plan to keep us all warm, which was we zipped all of our sleeping bags together and uh, we all slept in the same sleeping bag. And I don't know where my mom and my stepdad were at that point, um, but it was definitely like three o'clock in the morning. It was way too cold. Um, so my brother got us all together in a sleeping bag and we stayed in there. Um, and then the jar of honey, yeah, during the summer, I think it was our first summer in Alaska or second summer in Alaska, we didn't have any food. I remember going to my mom and telling her that I was actually hungry, which was a very big memory because I didn't really talk to my mom very often. Um, and I remember telling her I was hungry and I remember the look on her face and she felt horrible and you could tell. And she just said, I don't have anything. And, uh, our neighbors had given us jars of honey. Um, and that basically was what I ate was honey um, for a couple of days. Yeah. And there were four of you and the two older boys went to one home and you and your younger mm -hmm. brother came with me. Mm -hmm. And then your younger brother ended up um, really, really struggling a lot. Part of it was our house, how we did things. Um, part of it was, it was also, it happened during a time when they were, CPS was discussing reunification. I think like in my recollection, everything was overwhelming to him, our house, us, the situation. Mm -hmm. And like the only common thing that he had was you. And then also reunification is usually overwhelming for kids. They're really they really want to go back because generally kids want their parents to get it together. I know you're slightly, you're slightly different how you felt. And so um, it was a really hard decision because I wanted to be able to handle everything on my own. And I had a lot of training at that point. There was a point where I knew that he needed to be evaluated like mental health evaluation. And so 
And that was tough because I didn't want to separate the two of you either. And that's my recollection of that. So <clears throat> I know you guys have known each other. I mean, you have more relationship. And my relationship with him pretty much ended then. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, like I don't count him among the kids. He was a child I had in foster care longer term, but I don't count him in the 18 and we don't have a relationship now. And that was really tough because you want to keep siblings together as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And you were already split, although it was two families and we knew each other. And so that part was good. But um, yeah, you can keep, you can jump in on that or keep going with the, with being in my house or memories well, that you have. My brother was basically the baby and he had been used to just me and him playing together. And now I had all these siblings and yeah. I was the oldest of them and I really had a lot of fun with them and was very involved with them. So I'm sure that put Corey kind of in a position. Um, I do remember him sitting at the table and banging his head on the table. And I thought, mm, that's weird. That's just not good. And it kind of hurt me a little bit. But at the same time, I was just so wrapped up in being happy and living my life for the first time without being in survival mode. That, right. And I, and on top of it, I no longer had to be a parent or an adult to him or the person to take care of him. And I knew that you were the one that was going to do that. So I was able to not focus in on that. Had, had it been a different situation, had it been at my own home, like at my mom's house, I would have been like, well, what's going on here? And you know, been focused in on that because he was part of my responsibility. Right. So I think you're rare because you welcomed the change and you embraced it and it felt like home and you, you wanted to be there and to stay there. And you were mm -hmm. relieved that, cause you were very parentified and you were relieved. Um, yeah. And yeah, like, geez, at that point, Brianna, Olivia, Alana were there. They were all born. <laughs> And then Taylor was either born while you were, was he born while you were with me? No, he was there when I got He there. was already there. Okay. I remember. He was about six months old. Yep. And I remember he wasn't crawling and you taught him to crawl with the vacuum cleaner light. You were <laughs> vacuuming one day and you were, you know, he was sitting on the floor and you went up to him and then backed the vacuum up and he wanted the light and you were like, mother and we have photos I, I like I distinctly remember and I was like you just taught him how to crawl with the vacuum cleaner light and you know I, I also remember it was crazy because we were in a house and then we moved into a really small apartment and you guys were there and there were there were like four girls in a bedroom Taylor was in with me Corey we had a fold-out bed in the living room and we were in between one house and another house and that mm -hmm. that was also a difficult um, like it was a small place to live anyway, lots of memories coming up. So keep going, but yeah, yeah. So there were, you came into four, four new siblings, all younger than you and with your younger brother. Yeah. And I loved, I loved it. I was very happy. There are two stories that you shared, and this isn't to toot my own horn. This is because sometimes we make such a big difference, all of us, everyone, not just parents. We make such a big difference in the lives of kids by doing something random that we would that we don't think is a big deal and often without ever knowing it. And like I remember Alana remembers me spanking her once. And when I asked her to tell me the story, she's like, you told me not to eat, drink grape juice. And I had a white dress on and I drank it and I spilled it on my dress. And I was like, okay. And she's like, yeah, yeah. That's making more sense now. Like in her mind, <laughs> like, like of all the things you could remember, that's one of your top memories. Right. And we don't, we don't want them to be the times when we screwed up. So there are two things that I remember having a conversation with you about since you've been an adult, one was climbing a hill and one was a radio station. And it's not because I actually did it right on those two times. It's more to show that we can really make a difference by doing something like I don't remember either of those times. So share, share those, your memory. Okay. So when, before I got into foster care, I remember at one point we were driving and I had seen this hill um, going into Wasilla. 
Um, and then a couple months into being in foster care with you, I think it was when they were talking about like reunification or something. Um, we were driving by in the hill and I noticed it again. And you said, I want you, you told me you wanted me to think of a goal. And this is why I'm so goal, goal oriented is because you placed that in my, in my head and made, I was able to accomplish that goal. Um, but you had said, I want you to think of a goal that you can complete and we will complete it. And I seen this hill and I had always wanted to climb it. And so one day I, you know, I told you that this was the goal that I wanted was to climb that hill. And so one day you pulled over and you told me to go ahead. And then I went up to the business and I asked them if I could um, climb that hill. And I, I climbed it. And that was the first time that anybody had given me a goal uh, or had supported me on a goal or even really brought goals into my life. And so by climbing that hill and then having that support, it put that in my brain so permanently that I knew that goals were my ultimate way of life. And that is how I would accomplish everything. Yeah, I don't remember it at all, but I'm glad. I'm so glad that I actually, that I did it. I think parents get busy and there are things we want to do and we just get busy and forget. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad I glad that's one of your memories. And then I know that this is, again, I don't remember doing this, but there was a radio station you used to listen to. And I told okay. you it wasn't a great radio station. And I told you why. And that like, I, I would prefer you didn't listen to this radio station. And it's because some of the music is sending you messages that I don't think are positive, right there. It's more current hip hop. And that right. I, I told you, I didn't really love it. And I told you why. And then I told you, you could make the decision. And I remember you going, like, I still listen to it, but you listened <laughs> to it knowing how I felt. Right. And I, I gave you the choice. So, um, yeah. I just, and, you know, as actually, as an adult now, I, I put that on my children, uh, yeah. right now I, you know, I'm like, is that really something that you want to wear? Like, is that really it? Or is that, you know, when we're in the car, I don't listen to that music with my kids. I don't, you know, and I still actually, to be honest, I don't really even listen to it anymore. I mostly listen to uh, Christian music or soft country um, because it did, it, it, it did make an imprint. And it, maybe not when I was a teenager so much, right. but as I grew older and had my own children, I was like, wow, she was really right about that. Those are not the lyrics I want my kids singing <laughs> or dancing to. So I, <laughs> that was kind of nipped about Alana's age three. <laughs> when she and that's dancing. what brought it up when you told me about it was that sometimes until you get older and have a different perspective or you have kids of your own, I mean, even like, think about all the Disney movies and stuff that you watch as an adult and you're like, holy cow, I did not get that right. joke. I didn't catch that adult humor. Like I, you know, no wonder you didn't let me watch certain things because you guys are mm -hmm. still picking up on some of that messaging. Anyway, I just think it's interesting that you can even guide and direct your kids and they can make the choice that you would prefer them to not make, but sometimes they need to just go through that because it's not till later that it makes sense. But you also knew that I was, I didn't love the lyrics and why. So even mm -hmm. if you kept listening to it, in my mind as a parent, at least you had a different awareness. You were viewing it from mm -hmm. a slightly different lens. So yeah. you came into my house when you're 10, you had your first baby, you have four kids. You, your first one was born when you were 16, almost, I think you just, I think you had just turned 17. You were pregnant when you yeah. were 16. So yeah. in that almost seven years, I had moved from Alaska to Reno and I wanted to take you. You weren't in my house at that point, but I wanted you to have the right to choose and to come. And that was denied. And mm -hmm. also once you got pregnant as a teenager, it changed some of your rights a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
it also meant that there was a biological father who now had rights because from the time that I had you from the time that you were removed from my house and it started out as uh, reunification. That was why you were leaving my house. And I was really involved with your mom more than any other biological parent in getting her mm -hmm. set up so that she would be successful because that was the goal that she would be successful in reunification. And I would be a part of your life and that failed. And when it failed, you know, the system's super imperfect and you're not the only child that stayed with me really long-term that you, reunification was attempted and it failed and that child did not come back to my house. It, it happened with another one of the 18 also. And that's super unfortunate because it would have been great to have you just come back to my house. CPS decided not to do that. You can go into any of that from your perspective and memory. I know that I had a lot of meetings between reunification and when we left Alaska, many meetings on your behalf advocating to get you back. And yeah, it was a failure in the system for sure. Yeah. And OCS has actually admitted that to me, which was yeah. nice. Um so it doesn't help I, the fact that it happened, but yes, it no, is. No, it doesn't. They actually, so the removal of your home was probably the most traumatic thing I've ever been through. This is where I'm going to cry. Um, nobody asked me. Nobody really asked me what I wanted. Um, nobody talked to me really. Um, you kind of, you tried, but I could tell that you were really hurt and it was really hard. Um, basically the day they took me, they destroyed everything about me, my spirit, my, you know, my will, my, I had all those goals and stuff. Everything that you had taught me kind of got slammed. It got damaged. I got damaged. And they brought me to a foster home that I was their first foster child. And they were like, oh, she's such a good kid. She's such a good kid. This is going to be great because I was, I was their first foster child. So they just see me as a role model foster child, like, because I had done so well in your home. And they were like, she's going to do great. And I specifically remember like walking in. And my whole life was just ripped out from underneath me. And I got into bed and I stayed in bed. And that was my first moment of depression. And I stayed in bed for about two weeks crying. And they kept trying to get me to go to school and I wouldn't go to school. Um, I started getting irritated and angry. Um, I started sneaking the phone to call you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to go back I didn't understand why uh, why I was where I was at and the foster home that I was in tried to to help me uh, but they just I didn't want anything to do with them uh, shortly after that uh, they got other foster kids and these foster kids were a little bit like wild and had some behavioral problems and stuff. So I caught on to that really quick and I started acting up. I threw a phone at my, at their daughter, at my foster parents' daughters and tried to push her down the stairs because I wanted to go home. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to go back to you and I did everything I could. I acted up. I tried to run away. Um, they drank alcohol and so it it scared me I felt like I was on this path right back to where I was going like where I kept where I'd come from and um, my foster father made me very uncomfortable and he wasn't around too much but when he was I just did not feel comfortable or safe uh, there was no breakfast it was not like like being at home um so that was really, me. that was hard for me because they, 
they were working on their reunification with your mom. And because I had been so um, involved with your mom and helping her, she started calling OCS and making complaints about, uh, basically at that point, OCS had to follow up on every single complaint. And so she was calling in and calling in. It was creating such a problem in the mm -hmm. case that moving you eliminated the problem. I was the problem. You being in my home was the problem for your mom and the problem for OCS. So they did what was not in your best interest to eliminate how many issues were being created. And I was in lots of meetings adamantly disagreeing that you should have stayed with us and we should have we should have been the ones to ease you into reunification. And I think it was the worst call that they could have made. I did at the time. And that's not something that like you as like an 11 or 12 year old kid, like I, I can't tell you that. I can't say, well, your mom is at the point where reunification is supposed to happen and they're working on that. And she's creating so many issues that it's easier for OCS to eliminate me than it is to do what's in your best interest. Like I can't talk to a kid about that stuff. It was really, really challenging. And I can't tell you how much I went to bat and it didn't matter. I, and I let them know you are making a huge mistake in you're you're making her go through one more transition into reunification in a situation where I know what the failure rate of reunification is. I, I'm aware of the statistics. You hope that it's one of the few, the low percentage that succeed and that your mom had enough support. But basically that was the bottom line. It was creating such an issue that they did the worst thing for you in order to make it easier for them. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that for sure. Um, I went to several other foster homes after that because of my behavior. Uh, I just, and then finally, it just felt like they were just like, we're done, give, give her back. It just like one day out of nowhere, boom, I was going home. It was well, and, right. And it was just, uh, I, I don't have an answer. I spent 15 years in foster care and I did the last three of that as a trainer, a recruiter and trainer of foster parents. And I worked with treatment level kids during that time here in Reno, which are the toughest of the tough kids, the kids that have been through the most that are separated out of traditional foster care. And you became one of those kids. You became probably a treatment level kid by your behavior, which should have never happened. I mean, the the system created that. And even having spent that much time and having, I don't know how many kids, but five adoptions and three kids long-term in the system, um, I don't know how I would, if somebody said, Jen, you get to set up the system the way you think it would work the best. Trust me. There is no best. There's personal opinion and imperfect people in an imperfect system making sometimes not the best decision. And often you don't know that until later. And um, in this situation, I think they knew that they were making the worst decision for you, but the best decision for what they felt like for the case. And mm -hmm. I think it should always be in the best interest of the kids. I don't think it should ever be in the best interest of the system or the biological parents. I think biological parents need to fight for reunification. I think that they should be given that opportunity. I think there should be a time limit. I think they should have to meet certain marks. Like you have to do this by this time or this by this time or termination needs to happen. I think we should be, I think the birth parents should be more accountable and have markers that they need to hit. And if they don't, then the marker for termination and permanent placement needs to be hit. And it, that's my personal opinion. I I know it's hard. I've seen dozens of birth parents and I've seen reunification work and I've seen lots of time where it fails. And I don't think the system is holds the biological parents accountable enough um, and works towards ter termination because that should be the last thing that a biological parent wants. So if it's important to them, they need to be given the tools and the classes and the training and the, like, we need to give them everything they need to make it successful. 
And we should also give them a time limit for making that happen. Cause these kids are the ones that are hurting. And if it doesn't right. well, happen, also, yeah, go ahead. It would also be super beneficial if foster kids actually had a voice for their lives, because when you go through so much trauma at such a young age, you're kind of mature enough to decide where you want to go, where you want to be, especially when you're 11 years old, 12 years old, and you've been in that home and you remember the differences and the connection that I created with you was a a mother daughter connection. And that was, that was something that should not have ever been damaged or taken away. Yeah. Um, created so many mental health issues by taking that bond from me. Um, so I think that they need to really look at how they're doing that case by case and, and reunification is not always what's best for every child for sure. I'm living proof of that. Right. Um, I think that they put, they put kids in this like box because they don't want to traumatize them anymore, but they traumatize them so much more, not giving them any idea of what's happening and what's going on in their lives. And so you're living in this big unsure moment and you don't know what's going to happen next. You feel like you have absolutely no control of your life. You don't, and, and, and yes, you are a child. So ultimately the adults have the right to, to decide what's going to happen. But when you've come from trauma and when you've come from living your life alone and you finally get a home, you should be able to say, no, this is where I'm far, like where I'm going. This is where I belong. This is where I'm comfortable. This is what's best for me. And I know it's what's best for me because I know what's there waiting for me when I leave this home. Right. It wouldn't have mattered what anybody would have said. It would not have mattered what my biological mom had done. I had been in a home. I was in home and I was with a mother. I was with a father. I was with my siblings and nobody asked me. Nobody talked to me about what I wanted. I do remember like a guardian at Lightum taking me to get sugar snacks. Like (laughs) she always gave me so much sugar, (laughs) but she kind of talked to me about it. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm already home. Like, we don't need to talk about this. Like, this is where we're at. This is where I want to be. And I don't want anything to change. I was very content in my life. And so they, I really think foster children of a specific age should really have a decision and and reunification needs to go in a very different way than, oh, you're going from one home to back to home. It's something that should take a long time because had they slowly weaned me into my mom's home, they would have noted the, the damage that was being caused and and how unhealthy it was for me and how un- unsafe it was because I went, I went right back into a very unsafe situation. Right. It wasn't best for me at all. You used to steal the phone a lot. You started getting in trouble more and more. I remember you calling me one time talking about how like the police caught you. I don't remember. Did you steal a car or there was something with a car. There was graffiti on a school building and you were at a dance. And I remember going and like, so you took special K you like, I remember having this whole, and you were like, how do you know? And I'm like, yeah, like, cause I know because I, I have decent training and I know you so well and I'm smart and telling you like, Casey, I, we can't control you coming back into my house. I can never stop advocating for you. And I never stopped advocating for you. Never. Mm -hmm. However, I can't control that outcome and you can't either. And this is going to destroy your life in a totally different way. There's a point when you have to take the dysfunction from when you were growing up and realize that now you're creating your own dysfunction and you're going to have to be accountable for that. And that I didn't want you in juvenile detention. Like this is never going to result in a better outcome. 
The best mm-hmm. thing you could do is behave well and like, you know, you get more flies with honey sort of thing. And you were like, nope, done, done with that. I'm going to be terrible until they let me go back. And that was so hard to watch because I knew that you were starting a self-destructive process. They did. I was glad that you talked to me about it. And I understood your motivation for that. And I, I had meetings up until I moved. I, you were, you must've been just 16 when we moved from Alaska down to Reno and I never stopped asking for you back and asking for you to be able to make the change and look I know you love your daughter if they had reunified or allowed me to take you you wouldn't have been pregnant at 16 you're right and that's not about wanting Alana or not wanting Alana that's about your life changing to be better and not making some of those same decisions and so What else about that time until you got pregnant, do you, is there anything else that you want to discuss about that? I remember one point in time, um, you had seen me in town in Wasilla and you had picked me up. I was like hitchhiking or something. Um, and you seen me and you pulled over and you picked me up and you, you know, we talked and stuff and you drove me back out to my house. And I wanted to go with you. And my mom wasn't there. She didn't live with me. And I called her and I said, can I go with Jennifer? And she said, no. And I did not understand why. I did not understand why I had to stay in that home where there was no adults, no parents versus going home. I just still didn't understand why she didn't want me. You did. But she wasn't letting me. And that was like the first time that I had felt like my mom really didn't care about me. Like really, really, really didn't. Like she purposely did not care about me. I knew that she had, you know, she was my mom. She loved me. I knew that. I felt that. But in that moment, I realized that she didn't care what happened to me or what I wanted. And that basically broke my heart. And I started plotting to run away to you. Yeah. Um, That's what was my like next grand scheme is I was just going to start running away to your house all the time. Cause you told me where it was <laughs> and I was like, I'm going. <laughs> and then she called in my biological father. When I started running away, I'd make it to Wasilla and then I'd like turn around. Cause it'd be like three o'clock in the morning. And I knew I wouldn't find you. And I specifically remember walking down the, where you guys lived one time. And I couldn't remember exactly which house it was. Um, but it was like two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I was trying to find you guys, but I couldn't. So I had to go home or back to my mom's house and well, the house. And, and then, so once I continuously tried to run away, um, she brought in my biological father. Who didn't that, right. What did that change? Or was that just a threat? Uh, it really didn't change anything. It didn't really do anything besides make me realize that my parents really didn't care about me at all, uh, even more, because they brought him in and he was completely inappropriate. And uh, him and my brothers did things together that like was illegal. And so it was just a bad situation. He was just not it was not a beneficial moment and it actually caused me to, um, that was my first time that I, I think I went to North Star. Okay. Which is a or, mental health. Yeah. It was actually like, I had gotten out of North Star and start, like I had been to North Star a couple of times already actually at that point, but I knew that North Star, she would let me go to North Star 
to get away from everybody. And so I purposely did things to go to North Star. Right. Because if I couldn't go to your house, at least I had North Star, which was like stable and structured and safe. Right. And so I continuously put myself back in North Star. Which honestly is not a terrible plan. It shouldn't have to be that way. But that was a pretty good plan on your part to keep yourself safe, safe and healthier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly what my plan was is I just, I knew that I didn't belong where I was at and I knew that I had, I needed the support to continue to go further in my life. I was just grateful when you called me that also set you and I up. This is kind of like a side note. It set you and I up in our relationship for the past 17 years of not knowing how to have regular healthy contact with each other on an ongoing basis. We had this pattern for several years from like 11 or 12 ish to 18, that's six years of having to sneak and not being able to does that make sense that like six years of our communication set us up for the next 17 and I don't think you and I have ever learned how to just FaceTime when it's a good time for you and the kids and knowing that I'm going to pick it up if I can pick it up I'm always going to pick up the call um like how often can we do that do you want me to do that can I do that back where are you at texting on a regular basis using the phone instead of Facebook I mean it really set us up for like this lifetime of you being my daughter and me being your mom and you and I not not being certain how to how to find our own way to do that outside of living in a situation where we didn't have control. It set us up for that for the next 17 years. So keep, but keep, that's a side note. So keep going and just not having a conversation like, Hey, we get to do what we want. How do you want to do this? Like for 17 years, we've never had that conversation. And I flew up to Alaska once and you came down here once less than a year ago. Mm -hmm. It hasn't right. So like, why, why didn't you just become an adult? We were like, oh, cool. We get to do it our own way. But we were so conditioned to do things a certain way and not have the ability that neither one of us has figured out a good way that works. I think it's awesome that you knew you needed support moving forward in your life and that you set things up to be in a mental health facility to get that accomplished. And then you got pregnant at 16. So let's kind of sum up your time in foster care because you got pregnant and that was kind of the transition out of foster care for you. Right. Um, So basically um, once I got pregnant with Alana, like I just my whole entire life decided, you know, I, at that moment, I knew that I was no longer worried about me. I was more focused on providing for my daughter and giving her the best life I possibly could. Um, I was in a really bad home at that point with my daughter and made the decision to um, leave my home and stay with a family, a Christian family, who ultimately helped me go to school for a little bit. And Um, once I kind of got through that first couple months of Alana's life, I returned back to my home. That was not the best place for me. Um, there was a lot of partying and stuff, but I limited my contact with everybody and stayed focused and went to school with Alana. Um, and then almost at 18, I moved out into my own home, um, and got my CNA license. You getting pregnant and then being on your own, basically, once you're out of foster care, once you're 18, once you've aged out and your pregnancy kind of expedited that a little bit, it changed it for sure. Mm -hmm. Are there things that you still are bitter about? Have you had the ability to feel some closure or resolution on that chapter? You know, I was working at Walmart one day and I had a OCS caseworker that was on my case when I was younger. She came up to me and she said, you look familiar. And I said, well, I should. You controlled my life when I was a little girl. And 
you are my caseworker for OCS. And she's like, oh, well, how did that turn out? And I laughed at her and I said, well, I mean, look, I'm working at Walmart as a cashier. And she was like, well, at least you're working. And I was like, that's only because I got a little bit of time with my foster mom. She was kind of like, you could tell it bothered her um, that I had kind of confronted the situation. Um, but no, I don't, I don't believe I've had closure mostly because I haven't really had the ability to talk to OCS about things and what they did. Um, granted, they've been in my life ever since checking in on my kids because I was a foster child. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not closure. Um, recent, kind of recently, I basically told them to leave me alone. Uh, but what they did to me was not acceptable. And I'm sure as I get a little bit more into my life, I'm going to be able to, um, voice my opinion about OCS and the way they handled things for me in a more helpful way. That would be amazing. It was an awful situation for me. It was an awful situation for you. There was no recourse, um, it didn't matter how much either one of us advocated for you in your situation. And yeah, and I just want to be clear, like, I am so proud to be your mom. So proud of you. You, just like all of us, didn't make the best decisions every time because we're human, right? However, you did the best you could in a really tough situation. And I had to just sit feeling helpless watching you. And I'm so proud of you. And I'm proud of you now continuing to think of ways that you can still make it better, not for yourself, but maybe for the system in general. And so I love you so much and I'm so proud of you. And I am so grateful that you're brave enough to talk about it. Thank you. I love you too.